we have seen that over the last 12 to 18 months. The pressures of the impending EPC ratings, which have hit the, particularly the institutional investors, but also private investors. How would I have taken over a part-built site having never even really been taken on you know, full new build at the time? It's just about bringing the right team to the landowner. Hello, it's Alex Harrington-Griffin, the host of the Real Developer Podcast, powered by the creators of Land Insight and Land Fund, the market-leading land tech. In this episode, episode four of series three, myself, my co-host Siobhan Cook from Archco Developments sat down with our two guests to look at the land market for 2024. We spoke to Doris Ishak of DI Properties and Chris Georgianos of CBRE to look at the state of play and what we think could happen next year from an SME perspective. Together, we discuss everything from the consolidation of SME buyers in the marketplace to pressures on existing hotels and offices, making them ripe for conversion, as well as some solid advice from SMEs on really building trust with vendors, whether it's joint ventures or straightforward purchases. On that note, let's get on with the show. Welcome everyone to the Real Developer Podcast. My name is Alex Harrington-Griffin and welcome back for episode four of season three, still powered by the awesome Landtech. Today, we are taking a look at the bigger picture of the land market. We, in our previous episode, covered off the current state of affairs with our guests. And today, we want to look, take a little bit of a look at what potentially is going to happen next. Nobody's got a crystal ball, but I think it's a good conversation to have, especially with our guests in the room today. Before we introduce our guest, I'm going to say hello to my co-host, Siobhan Cook, the award-winning developer, accredited real developer from Archco Developments. Hello, Siobhan. Thank you, Alex. You're too kind. Hello. Uh, you know, I plan these in advance to make sure I get all your attributes out. <laughs> Um, and our guest today, back fresh from episode three, is Chris Georgianis from CBRE and Doris Ishak from DI Properties. Hi. Hello, guys. Good morning. Hi. Good morning. How are you? I am fantastic. Ready to get into a bit of future gazing, um, but we're not going to hold you to anything. This is purely a chance to share some perspectives, share some views, hopefully give us a little bit of insights into behind the closed doors of your companies, DI Properties and CBRE in terms of what you are seeing at the moment. So I think the first question, which we did talk a little bit about in episode three is, and this is obviously one that's very, very close to my heart in terms of SME buyers as well. Are we going to see a lot of the buyers that have pulled back return to the market next year, do you think? Or is this a consolidation of the market that is potentially going to be a good thing as well? We talked a little bit about the post-COVID land buying frenzy. Things were a lot easier then. 2023 has set a lot of challenges. And I think for a lot of developers that I spent time with and I advise, there has been this feeling of frustration that they can't get deals to stack. And actually, they've actually, some of them have looked at other businesses alongside the property, not necessarily just land and development. So, Chris, if you can start us off, what do you feel is this a good thing for the market that actually we've seen a pullback? Do we think we're going to see them return? Yeah, I think consolidation um, in this market is, is inevitable, but obviously nobody wants to see um, companies going under. I think some parties that have sat out and decided not to offer or contractually commit to sites over the past 12 months have done that principally due to financing issues. Um, with base rates where they are and where they've gone to over the last 12 months or so, um, with, with lender margins, they are becoming unaffordable. So I think for the SMEs, particularly that are reliant on that third party funding, it has been a very challenging year. You know, there's hope that interest rates are going to drop into Q1 of next year. Potentially the lenders are going to be back into the market. 
Um, I think the other issue we've got for the SMEs is trying to convince landowners that the funding is going to be there, particularly if there's a conditional on planning deal structure, which in, as we've talked about in the previous episode, might be 12, 18 months time. So there are challenges, um, but yeah, you know, these SMEs, that's, that's what they're there for. They're sector specialists that know how to navigate these trickier times. So, um, you know, hopefully 2024 will be a, a less challenging year for them. Doris, what's your thoughts? I have been through two recessions. Um, Maybe three. <laughs> so, okay. Um, Is that part of your crystal? <laughs> no. Um, no, but I've been through two recessions and people do bounce back. And I think, um, you know, from all the people that were in the previous recessions, um, this one is not as hard as what was previously. And I see the SME developers definitely bouncing back next year. Some are putting their hands in their pocket wisely. Some of them have overseas money. We're seeing a lot of overseas money partnering up with SME developers. We're seeing, as we said in, uh, previously, joint ventures being done. And as far as next year is concerned, hopefully with interest rates potentially coming down, a um, bit more confidence in the market because of it. I think naturally, as a cycle of most properties, it's a natural progression where things just get better. Um, even if they need to get worse, they still will get better. Mm -hmm. So I've seen two big cycles and they always get better. So if you are able, if you're in the market, you're not here today, you will definitely be back tomorrow. I'm going to touch on that. And I'm probably going to say something that might be a bit controversial given the focus of the podcast on SME developers. But we've seen the discussions, or I've seen the discussions with certain smaller land agencies, land sources, who you recognize that they are new into the space and development has no barriers to entry. Anybody, the four of us can form a company and go build duplex apartments in the sky tomorrow if we want to, but luckily we're all very, very qualified. But anybody can step into this space and it sometimes is a little bit of the problem area. It's the reason the real developer accreditation exists to recognize track record, to recognize commitment to a space, to investing in brand. Do we not think that actually losing some of those, let's say, in the micro small space, who also may become very ambitious, may grab an investor who hasn't actually placed any funds but talks a good game, and actually throws a lot of spanners into getting land deals done, is, is that not potentially a good thing? We actually lose some of those? It's not a bad thing. It's not a good thing. The thing is you want someone to complete a transaction from <laughs> yeah. our perspective. If we right, ask all the right questions, get all the right information, um, the, the landowner sells his site and they complete. The next stage after completion is clearly up to that SME developer. That We're not involved in that unless we, we do a lot of forward purchases. So we would be involved to sell all the finished units, which we, we're selling probably over a thousand units at the moment as a forward purchase. But as just selling the site, the answer is, you know, it's, the money's coming in. If they can prove that they can buy, then obviously we'll take them seriously. Yeah. I don't think, I, you know, I don't like judging things because um, at the end of the day, you know, I've sold my career, I've sold to people that couldn't afford more than two flats and now they're billionaires <laughs> and they're big property companies and I know most of them. Mm. And so I give everyone a chance. And, but particularly in this market, they have to prove they're able to purchase. That's a good answer, Doris. And Chris, jumping back to yourself, we spoke in the previous episode about family housing. What do we think is going to be popular 10 years, popular focus for 2024? 
family housing is obviously still going to be flavor, but do we see things like build to rent and co-living becoming even bigger, for example? So yeah, across the Southeast, single family housing has been a massive growth sector over the last few years. Um, at CBRE, we are very fortunate to have a market leading residential capital markets team that advises on various residential uses, um, student housing, affordable housing, and traditional built to rent. I think across the Southeast, residential for sale product is always going to be um, the most prominent. Um, and it's one that, that generally drives the most land value. Um, but as we get into um, you know, more challenging markets and more dynamic markets, um, it's about looking to sweat these business plans. And if there's an alternative use class that delivers either a, a higher receipt or indeed um, accelerates the delivery of a phase or a parcel on a larger scheme, then that's something that's going to become more and more ingrained into the industry. Um, we've seen some of the PLCs even in the last few months or so um, been releasing uh, parcels and or phases across multiple sites um, for build to rent opportunities. And so that single family uh, build to rent development pipeline is increasing in the more traditional um, Southeast uh, family housing sector locations. And that's something that will, yeah, I, I'm sure will continue over the, the next few years. And those build to rent operators or buyers, they are strategic, they are planned, they are organisations focusing on that. We're not going to see a big drive of accidental co-living operators or build to rent operators, do you think? No, I don't think so. I think what we've seen from our property company and master developer clients is that they are now building in this alternative residential use class into their appraisals and their business planning. Whereas that might not have been the case five, 10 years ago, they might have been approached by an operator, developer, um, and considered a deal um, in isolation. So it's about ensuring that the business planning is considering all of those residential uses, um, which maximises their excess, essentially. Very interesting. Doris, what have, what have you seen? Well, I've seen and we're doing at the moment, co-living and built to rent is definitely um, high on the agenda because obviously uh, rentable properties is, um, the rents have increased dramatically 15%, 20% over the last six months, ten, six months, nine months. Um, and we're seeing that on portfolios we're selling. So we are, uh, have been, and we are being very successful in selling co-living, but alternative, alternative use building. So we've just sold something, a hotel where it was fully franchise management agreement. We had to think outside the box. We had to get the franchise agreement off. We had to get the management agreement, um, cancelled so we could get a vacant hotel so that it could go to co-living. Um, we've sold three offices, 75,000 square feet, 65 and I think one's 120 square feet for student and co-living in London. Exist, um, existing, buildings, existing buildings, existing buildings, not speculative. No, existing buildings. They're offices um, that um, obviously were serviced offices that no longer are producing the income and the hotel no longer producing the income that they mm. they you know that would require the price that the vendor wanted and we're seeing alternative uses to sites or bringing in the sites and actually getting extensions to them adding further floors onto them on existing buildings um and co-living is very is definitely something that we're very focused on too as well as the family homes interesting okay so you touched there on on the hotels and mm -hmm. the office space. Obviously, over the last few years, we've seen a lot of change. Um, hospitality has taken a, a real hit and PD changes for, for office conversions. Where do you feel, what sector do you feel has got the still got the most pressure on them 
um, to sell or change use? Where do you see the developments coming from? Yeah, certainly from our perspective, we're seeing the office market as net sellers. Um, and we have seen that over the last 12 to 18 months. The pressures of the impending EPC ratings, which have hit the particularly the institutional investors, but also private investors. Um, they've, they've had a decision to make recently, which is either spend significant amount of money on CapEx, refurbishing stock to get them up to the um, standards that are coming into the future, or decide to sell for alternative use. So we've seen a lot of um, assets hit the market and certainly a lot of the institutions uh, we believe are planning to do so over the next 12, 12 to 18 months. So there should be definite opportunities there. The types of purchases we tend to deal with um, aren't PD specialists. So they will probably be looking to use this as a, a window to uh, work the PD application, change the use, and then look to a new build application from there. So it's a bit of a stepping stone, mm. um, but there should be opportunities going forward. And, and perhaps for some of the smaller SMEs entering into those deal structures um, may be a, an opportunity for them because um, some of these office buildings that are coming to the market have still got residual income. It's easier to borrow against whilst working up a business plan for an alternative residential exit. Okay, fantastic. Good answer. I've been saying for a while, actually, that, you know, waiting for these sites to come back on, waited for these distress sales, and, and you touched on it, Doris. I mean, I don't, I don't think we've possibly seen enough distress sales. Mm. How, how do you see, you seem to have seen a little bit more than I have. How do you see that going forwards? What have you seen this year? And how do you see that in 2024? I really do believe that um, that market will continue. Mm. I've spoken to quite a few receivers, administrators. Um, I've sold this year one site a month until July, if not August, I think August. And they were part-built sites from right. receivers. Um, and we basically, on probably four out of the seven, um, we had 350, 400 inquiries for part-built sites in this market. Oh. We On one of them, we had 35 offers above asking price. Um, And on the smaller sites, we had pretty much the same response to our marketing campaign. There are buyers there to buy um, what is called distressed Mm -hmm. um, and and have the capability of taking over part-built sites um, and are well-funded for that. So it was a very, it was actually good to have a whole host of good buyers, but then to have to decide which buyer to go with in this marketplace. Will there be more? I think there will be more. And I think it will be all over the UK, more so than London. Um, and I'm seeing, I'm um, being asked potentially on two sites outside London for 100 units and 125 units by receiver to value um, where we've done business with them before. So I think it will continue. Um, I think also the um, investment market, portfolios, blocks of flats where the interest rates have soared up. Their interest rates have been, um, you know, are, are not fixed and they have to sell. So there's a lot of investment properties that are going to be coming to the market as well. And I'm not sure if it's only going to come through receivers because I'm seeing clients having to sell their uh, portfolios just due to the interest rate hikes and um, the affordability of holding them. Yeah. So, yeah, I think there will be. Will there be a lot? I don't know. I mean, in my world, there is a, you know, there is a substantial amount coming through. I have heard, and just before we get Chris's view on this, I have heard of uh, a big growth in receivership light, which is kind of receivers sitting in the background, not necessarily controlling a transaction, but guiding and almost to a degree taking over the transaction as well, depending on the lender appetite. 
Lenders obviously want to be a little bit more um, reputationally minded than 2008 and 2009. Just so you mentioned there, Doris, about the level, which is phenomenal, of inquiries and bids on those part-built sites. When you're looking through those, and obviously we're being mindful of our audience who you know, often are SME developers looking to keep busy, acquire, make profit, you know, generate good homes. For those part-built sites, do you need bidders who have done that before? Because it is not a simple thing to take on a part-built site. You know, that tends a lot of headaches. And maybe you know, when I was encouraged into the space, I was told to go and make friends with receivers because they had good quality stock. How would I have taken over a part-built site having never even really been taken on you know, full new build at the time? It's complicated. I agree. It is very complicated. <laughs> and that comes back to what I said in the last podcast, that you really do need all the information because it's the well, if they stop work, you've got steels frames up or you've just got ground floor slabs and um, you still need, are they, is there any warranties? I mean, the, it, there's a whole host of things that could have happened or didn't happen and you need the paperwork to support it. If you've never bought a part built site and you're getting normal funding, I think it might be difficult. Or if you're partners with someone who has or has the expertise to analyze the paperwork and deal with it, then yes. But just to, just to expect that the, all the warranties are going to be in place and it's very clean um, won't be the case because obviously the reason why it's in receivership is because it's stopped dead in a certain level, whether mm. it's, you know, the steel frames, as I said, or the ground or up to ground floor slabs or just the basement dug out. Has the basement got warranties? Has it got a damp proofing? You know, it could be 20,000 square feet basement. Are these buyers prepared to take that challenge on and do they mm. understand it? And that's for us to decide with the administrators who the right buyer is. Understood. And Chris, I jumped in with a, a, a curveball question for Doris there. I would love to get your uh, your views on the uh, activity for next year, do you think? Uh, did more distress? I don't know. I think, you know, when I look back to, I joined CBRE in 2013. And at that time, we were probably dealing with three or four, maybe four or five receivership sales a year. I think the gearing issues that were around post-global financial crisis, we don't have in play at the moment. So I think for a lot of developers, the SMEs that don't have um, in-house funds or balance sheets to contribute towards their uh, financing schemes, um, the, the gearing ratios are that position whereby they're not in trouble. It's just that the viability is perhaps not as, as uh, fruitful as it, it should have been when a uh, business plan. So I think you know we're not anticipating there to be significant uplift in, in receivership or administration sales. That said, we have had a couple of instru- uh, um, tender opportunities across our desk over even the last couple of weeks or so. So um, they are out there, but um, we, we don't think it's going to be forming a significant part of our instructions for next year. Okay. Which I suppose really does mean it's a good thing, really, because we don't want distress. You know, distress means, unfortunately, there are people behind businesses that will be losing out. And that's what we don't want, essentially. But we have got to have a real discussion about where deals, opportunities may come from as well. So we touched in the previous podcast on on timeframes and how planning has 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 extended all that so much and how we have to deal with that now going forwards. Um, how are you finding that best to deal with sellers in the way of maybe structuring the deals differently, maybe doing joint ventures or an, another other ways of structuring the deal so the timeframes feel more manageable from both sides? Do you want to go to Yeah, no problem. <laughs> um, well, clearly the, for timeframes. Okay, we've got we've got a couple of very interesting situations actually because we've got overseas bar, overseas money coming in with the SME buyers, and the timeframes generally with planning now it could be a year, 
two years, depending how big the site is and which council, if they're still there, Mm. can you get planning on. And what we've managed to do on three sites is actually put bigger deposits down because the um, the money's come from overseas and um, the cost of money is not as much as borrowing in the UK. That's not typical, clearly, Mm. of the marketplace, but we have the ability to sell sites and give landowners some comfort with these type of buyers. And I wouldn't say that's the majority of the buyers that are out there. The other side is joint ventures, which we touched on previously. And I really do believe that um, if a landowner is able to wait for a development and go through the planning process, he will end up in a much better position being a joint venture partner to some of the professional buyers that we have. And as far as timeframes concerned for exchange and give them comfort, it's, I think it's basically what I've said before. The landowner's got to trust you. They've got Mm. to believe in who you are. They've got to believe in your team. Team have got to be professional. And if you're giving the right advice, there's absolutely nothing else that anyone else can do because the system has caused these delays and these problems. And if you show them that, it's not the buyers and it's not anyone within their company. So understanding that gives them comfort because they can't go anywhere else. Where else can they go if they want to sell it to maximize it? They can sell it unconditionally and get a certain price, or they can sell it subject to planning and get a further price, which Mm. is higher. And those two, and it's just a matter of which one does he want to take? Does he have time to wait the year to two years to get the extra? Or does he really need to sell now and sell it unconditionally? And unconditionally, they're buyers to buy it without planning. Yeah, and certainly we've seen um, a lot more joint venture offers uh, being tabled by um, the PLCs and the SMEs. Um, looking to defer the risk and reward um, and for the landowners to obviously share in that. I think where the JVs tend to work best is where you've got a planning permission, either an outline or a detailed and a clear business plan um, of, of you know, milestones and when the, um, the joint venture is looking to recoup their money. Um, where joint ventures are made on sites at allocation stage or without outline planning, it's very difficult to try and pinpoint the proper business plan, the residential exit use, whether that's a for sale, build to rent, um, an affordable housing product. Um, and therefore, um, there's a bit more or, or, or there's less certainty for our landowner clients. But yes, yeah, certainly in this market, we've seen um, a rise of joint venture offers being, uh, being, being tabled. Um, and no doubt that will continue until things hopefully return to more normalised conditions in you know back end of this year, Q1 early next year. Fingers crossed. <laughs> <laughs> so to round off the session, I did have a question written down about two key things that SMEs can do right now to prepare for land buying next year. But we have in the last two episodes talked a lot about JVs and I'm a big fan of, of the potential. I'm a big fan of doing things differently when the thing that normally would work doesn't work. And it doesn't, it, often in case it doesn't work at the moment. And you've both given great examples of where people can look at approaching deal structuring differently. Just the question, what do you feel are two things that developers can be doing now to get themselves in the frame of mind, ready to look at more joint ventures, to make themselves, you've used the word trust in in a three times talking about joint ventures. <laughs> trust comes through consistency of actions and also you know what you say. But I think there are certain, you know if we're talking about a, an informed developer working with a lesser informed, because you talked about sort of prop codes as well, they will be informed, but still maybe not on joint ventures. What do you think are two things that SMEs can do to make themselves more JV ready. Doris, have you got any ideas on how we build that trust? Interesting question. I just think if you have the right professionals around, 
around you and you present the right professionals, then that is a start because, you know, it's the professionals that are going to get the planning, mm -hmm. it's the architects and the planners. If the landowners are open to the conversation, I, I think it's just about, it's just about bringing the right team to the landowner. And I think the S SMEs do have to have their team ready because mm -hmm. if I phone up one of my buyers and say, let's do a joint venture now, and they've never done it before, um, and they ask me 101 questions, I need to move on to the next person who I know understands it, can give the landowner confidence, and I can literally walk them in tomorrow because it's the right time to walk them in because mm -hmm. they're prepared. And being prepared is definitely answered. That's a really good question. Thank you for asking it. Okay. Yeah, I think it's funding, track record, experience, as Doris has mentioned, and ultimately professionalism. You know, can you rely on this party? You're going to be in with them for a longer period than just a conditional on planning uh, deal structure. So um, it's about the SME articulating their business planning, their vision, how they're going to deliver on those plans. Um, and ultimately, you know, whether you've got the confidence to recommend to your landowner client or property company client um, to enter into what is going to be, a, a, you know, a short to medium term marriage with another party. So um, those are the key things really. And their marriage part is one of the key words as well. It sounds like we should be holding our uh, guests back for episode five to do a workshop on joint ventures, given how uh, important it's going to be. But that is all the time we have uh, for today. Thank you very much, Doris. Thank you to Chris and an awesome thank you to my co-host, Siobhan, as well. Thanks, guys. Thank, thank you, you very, very much. much. Thank you. Hello, everyone. It's your host, Alexandra Griffin, again, just to say thank you for joining us for this episode. If you liked it, hit the like button, subscribe, and of course, share it with your peers. A big thank you to our partners, Land Tech, for powering this episode. If you want to find out more about their products like Land Insight or Land Fund, go to land.tech or follow Land Tech on LinkedIn for SME developer updates, finance updates, and of course, the data and research mentioned in this episode. We'll see you back for the next session when we get into some real development conversation. Thank you.